Psalm 115. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. We also have physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the, free, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among all those really important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered through the lens of knowing him. And if the scriptures, oh man, this is going to be a long day. All right, if the scriptures are what he uses to, to kind of do that in you, like, like just do the math in your head real quick. Um, like we, we think that people ought to be reading the scriptures and that God will use that in a big way. And so uh, take that one home and, and call it yours. And it'll be the best part of my day, even though it's World Cup season. Like I'm, I'm going to go home and watch soccer later and then football. And I'm having a good day. All right. You may, you may not have as good a day as me, but I'm having a good day. But if you take a Bible home and start reading it, it'll be the best part of my day. All right, so we have been digging into uh, the Psalms for about a month now. Uh, we've got one more that we're going to look at this morning uh, before we get ready to kick off our Advent series uh, next week. And, and if you haven't been here, uh, the Psalms are a little bit different uh, than most of the stuff, most of the sermon series that we tend to, to kind of build ourselves around and, and, and make a big deal of out of here. Just personality-wise, I tend to be more analytical. I don't know if you're like me or not. Maybe you're the exact opposite of me. Uh, but I tend to be more analytical. I, I prefer a logical flow of argument and then a very clear to-do list. All right? And when I have those things, I'm in my happy place. That and soccer. All right? um, but like maybe you're not like that at, at all. And so personality-wise, I, I just kind of feel at home in the New Testament epistles. That's kind of what they do. Uh, this thing is true, and so therefore, go and live in this way. All right? That's kind of how Paul writes most of his New Testament letters. Um, I tend to like the minor prophets as well because they do the exact same thing, except they also get in people's faces about stuff. All right? And so that's just my personality. It's what I, I like. Um, but the Psalms, they just don't try to do any of that. They're not aiming for that kind of tone in any way, shape, or form. The Psalms are more about opening a window into the life and the hearts, the failures and successes, but mostly failures of God's people as they lived. And we've described them before in here as raw emotion laid bare. Raw emotion laid bare. And maybe that's something you feel comforted by. Maybe you like that kind of thing. Or maybe that's something that makes you pretty uneasy, like you don't, like you don't prefer to live in that world very often. I think, I think you can enjoy the Psalms, and I think you can even maybe even hate the Psalms. But what you cannot do is ignore the Psalms. You can't ignore them. And the reason for that is because the Psalms, Psalms actually get us. They get you deeply. The psalmists, instead of prettying things up, they rip the filter off. And they show you what's actually going on in the heads and the hearts of God's people. And if we're honest, those things look awfully familiar to us. It's because we live them. They were Thursday for us. See, whether they're up or down or somewhere in the middle, the Psalms are brutally honest. They're brutally honest. And, and when read correctly, I think they teach us to trust more fully in God's goodness and in His sovereignty and his great care for us. And so, you ready to look at Psalm 115 this morning? Hope you are. It's the only plan I got. So what do we know about Psalm 115 in advance? The answer is not much. Um, 
Psalm 115 is different. We actually know less about it as a psalm than we do with a lot of the other psalms that we've looked at throughout the last couple of years that we've been digging into these. Um, there's no title to this psalm. We don't, we don't know who it's written by. We don't know who it's written to or what style it's in. Uh, the only things we have to go on here are where the psalm is located in the larger Psalter. All right? And we've got some small clues that we think we can pick apart, uh, kind of scattered in the middle of the text itself. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Songs and Psalms, and, and to my knowledge, I've, I've never personally spent much time talking to y'all about this. Uh, the book of Psalms is broken up into five smaller books. All right? and maybe that's brand new news to you. Maybe it's something you already knew. I don't know. All right? But they're broken into five smaller books, and most of those psalms in each of those books are categorized mostly by the topic of the psalm, of what the psalm is about. All right? uh, book five, the last book, is the largest of those little five smaller books. Uh, it's Psalms 107 through 150. All right? So it's a big old chunk of them. All right? And the tone of book five is summarized really, really well by a statement that's made at the very end of book four. All right? And so in Psalm 106, 47, it says this, Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. That's a statement that the psalmist makes in Psalm 106, and then book five kind of takes up that, that mantle. This is exactly what we're going to do. All right? We can say it this way. Book 5 is a collection of psalms offering praise to God because, because he rescues his people from the nations. He provides what they need and he ultimately glorifies his own name through his own faithfulness and covenant promises. And so praise him. That's what book 5 is all about. And that's precisely the chord that's struck in the very first verse of Psalm 115. We're going to look at it today. Let's look at it now. Psalm 115 starting in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, if you're from a certain generation, the one I'm from, uh, you're going to have to work really, really hard right now not to have a Chris Tomlin song rattling around in your head, right? Some of you got that, many of you didn't, all right? <laughs> so the answer is yes. Chris Tomlin absolutely took that, that very famous line of probably his most famous song from Psalm 115.1. It's the only thing he pulls from Psalm 115.1, but he pulls this exact line. Right? But Tomlin isn't the only guy to think that the first verse of Psalm 115 is something that we should be paying attention to. Um, if you're not familiar with the life and story of William Wilberforce, you need to remedy that now. You need to remedy that today. Go home and study it for yourself. Uh, Wilberforce is, was a Christian uh, who worked for 46 years to first abolish the slave trade in England in 1807, and then after that to fully emancipate the English slaves in 1833. That's William Wilberforce. He was a slave trader himself, and God eventually woke him up to his sin and used him as a statesman and a scholar to undo the system that he had played a role in for all of his career. He spent 46 years breaking that system apart. Both then and now, British people point to William Wilberforce as the person, not a person, the person who is responsible for bringing slavery to an end in England. Wilberforce is a big old deal. It was Wilberforce's argumentation that eventually came across the ocean and helped to emancipate people on our own shores. That was his logic that was laid out that people went, oh yeah, we probably ought to do something about this. In 1833, when the English Emancipation finally passed Parliament, Wilberforce's friends 
rushed to tell him the good news. He, he was only a few months away from his death or at the time. And so he wasn't actually in Parliament when it was finally voted on. And so his friends rushed to tell him the great news uh, that he had worked for so, so hard for for like almost five full decades. He committed the last half of his life to it. And according to the story, you know what Wilberforce did? He excused himself from his friends, said, I got to go pray. And he went off to meditate on Psalm 115. The story that's been handed down to us is that this psalm was the psalm that immediately came to Wilberforce's mind in the moment of praise. He didn't want the credit. He didn't want the credit. He wanted to celebrate what God had done. Wilberforce understood deeply that the praise for every single good thing that he had worked so hard for, it ultimately belonged to God, not to himself. The psalmist here, he says, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> Do I need a handheld or something? Huh? Oh, there we go. Hey. All right. This is going to be great because I like to talk with my hands. The reason why I can normally keep this hand in my pocket is because it's not over here. All right. It'll be great. All right. So the psalmist here, he says, we, we don't deserve the glory. We don't deserve the glory. God deserves the glory. It's your name, God, not ours. It's your name, God, that deserves to be made more famous. Why? Because you're full of steadfast love. You're full of faithfulness. It, it wasn't, it wasn't for it wasn't for our goodness that we know you. It's because of your steadfast love. It's because of your incredible graciousness to, us, graciousness to us that we're even standing here. And it's precisely that how great is our God kind of realization. It's precisely that realization that colors how verse 2 is read. Look at it. It says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So this is one of the clues that we have in this text of what might be going on outside of the text. Uh, the psalm appears uh, to have kind of been written during a time period uh, where God's people are facing opposition from the pagan nations, the pagan peoples uh, surrounding them. Right? And obviously there's some debate over when exactly that you know, period might be. Some like to point to the wilderness wanderings post-Exodus. Others uh, think it might have been during the time period of the judges. Uh, still others say, oh, maybe it was the Philistine threat during uh, David and Saul's reign. Right? Uh, but then a lot of others, a whole bunch of other folk, have really good reason to believe that it was written post-exile, coming back from Babylon. So which one is it? I have no idea. If you've got a good guess, I'd love to hear it. I have no idea. All we have are theories. But we do have reason to believe that Israel or Judah, whoever it is, they are getting peppered with taunts uh, from the pagan Gentile nations surrounding them. That's what's going on right now. Where's your God, Israel? I don't see him around here. Hey, could you go ahead and point him out to me? Because I don't see a whole lot of God hanging out in this place. And Israel or Judah, whoever it is, well, they seem to be having one of their finer moments. Because they have an answer. Oh, our God. <laughs> you want to know where, where our God is? Oh, he's in the heavens. And he does all that he pleases. What we see here is a full-throated confidence in the sovereignty and unparalleled power of God. 
In the middle of their neighbors attempting to mock and belittle Israel, Judah, they are completely unfazed by the taunt. It doesn't affect them at all. And this, and this is a spiritual reality that I really am convinced that a lot of people in this world need to lock down in tight. All right? uh, when, when you see God rightly, when you get a proper sense of who he is and the glory that is due to him and him alone. Listen, church, all the other nonsense, it tends to fade into the background. It ceases to, to matter. In this specific case, the taunts die away. The nations can rage all they want to, but not one single bit of it will ever come close to removing God from his throne. Not a bit. God's people are having one of their finer moments, it seems. They they see God clearly. They rightly understand who he is and, and how they relate to him. And because of that correct seeing, the taunts of their neighbors, don't, they don't carry any weight. It doesn't matter. What? But not only does... Seeing God correctly breathe confidence into his people, it also, we see, guards them from the absurdity of all the false gods of their neighbors. Look at verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So, I don't know if you've ever noticed this for yourself as you're reading through the Bible on your own. uh, But when it comes to the statues uh, attempting to idolize the false gods of the pagans, all the people always surrounding God's people, God speaks a consistent thread of mockery throughout both the Old and New Testaments. He's always making fun of them. Always. Over and over and over again, the logic is always brought back to the surface. Hey, listen, if your God needed you to craft a statue of them, then maybe your God's not God at all. You ever thought about that? If they need you to help them in some kind of way, if you need to to make them and and artistically craft them, if you need to bathe them and feed them and and pay homage to them, then maybe maybe he's not God at all because the truth of God doesn't need that from you. Whether you want to carve them out of wood or stone, go, go ahead and cast them in silver and gold if you want to. I'm sure they'll be pretty, but they will never, ever be anything more than the work of human hands. Their mouths will never speak. Their eyes will never see. Pray to them all you want to, but their stone ears will never, ever be capable of actually hearing you. The artistry you pour into your idol is completely irrelevant to whether or not they are actually a God who is capable of saving you. They don't have it in them. I I mentioned last week... Some of y'all blessed me with an, an archaeological history trip to, to Greece and Turkey. Uh, one, thank you. Uh, but two, I came loaded. <laughs> I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be talking about this stuff for a while. I got the privilege to, to tour a number of places that, that not only are important to biblical history, uh, uh, biblical minds and worldviews, but I also got to go to a number of places that are important to a larger audience, places like Athens and Delphi and ancient Troy. And if I were to give an incredibly super quick summation of what you see when you go to those places, it's this. Temples and idols everywhere. They're all tipped over. Some of them have been tried to have been cobbled back together. But temples and idols everywhere. 
Um, I don't know if the sound guy's got it in there, but I had a couple of pictures. All right. Uh, hey, look at there. All right. So the first picture is in Delphi. It's the Sphinx of Delphi. All right. Uh, that, that sucker's like, like six or seven feet tall all on its own. But originally it sat on top of a 40-foot pillar. It's an impressive thing. It, it, was a, it was given as a present from a, an island nation of Greece. Uh, and it was presented to the false god Apollo. That's what you find at Delphi is the, is the main temple of the god Apollo. And they had the oracles and all those kinds of things. And that sphinx creature sat on top of a big old pedestal, a 40-foot pedestal, right outside the temple. Now, why is that a, a big deal? Because sphinxes in that culture were seen as guardians, protectors of things. So follow the logic here. The people that gave that statue thought it would please Apollo and that he would turn around and bless them because they worked, they helped to protect him as a god. Apollo needed protection from a sphinx. Logic falls just a little bit short of our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Second picture is of the goddess Tyche. The goddess of wealth and fortune is that in a museum in Istanbul. Um, incredibly pretty. Uh, obviously, whoever sculpted it was incredibly artistic. Like, there are folds in the, the, the dress and fruit. And she's got her cornucopia and she's got her baby with her and all these kinds of things. And if you were to walk into a situation in the ancient world where you could use a little bit of luck, Maybe you got a big meeting coming up, presentation that you're worried about, uh, wondering where the next bill's going to uh, get paid from. If, you need a, if you're in a situation where you need a little bit of luck, you go ahead and you make your sacrifice, and, and then perhaps Tyche will smile upon you. Maybe she'll choose to bend low, condescend, and lavish you with some of her incredible fortune. That's the game. These are exactly the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul saw when he made it to the city of Athens in Acts 17, right? Paul saw everywhere around him statues and temples, even ones to unknown gods in case they forgot one. He tells those gathered at the Arabicus in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He didn't, he didn't need a sacrifice from you kidding me? Paul didn't pull that logic from out of thin air. It's God's own indictment of the idols that are always surrounding his people. And the psalmist here in Psalm 115, he sees it too. Church, rightly seeing God's glory, rightly understanding the sovereignty of God on his heavenly throne, it puts all the deaf and dumb idols around you into their proper perspective. They can't compare. Lovely craftsmanship, I'm sure. Their features are incredibly lifelike, but you know what they actually lack? Life. They're powerless. They're dead. And upping the artistry just a little bit more, digging deep and pouring in more skill and pouring in more resources to make your idol a little bit fancier than the idol down the road, it's never going to get them across the line to, to, for that work of art to actually become a god. It's just a prettier version of the other God. Prettier version of the other lifeless statue. But the writer of Psalm 115 says, Hey, our God, now he's in the heavens. 
He does all that he pleases. He, he doesn't need statues. And how can he ever be constrained by such lowly man-made junk? Think you could craft a nose that's pretty enough for him? Think you could def- refine your artistry enough to where the ears of a statue are worthy of the true God? And those who chase after those man-made gods, well, they always eventually become like them, lifeless. They might be dressed up, their features may be incredibly attractive to human eyes, but they are spiritually dead. And so the psalmist says this in verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So the psalm uh, has called what's called a chiastic structure. Uh, if you're familiar with the psalms at all, uh, it means that it builds and it builds and it builds to a grand peak, and then it walks right back down to where it came from. So A A to B to C to B to A. All right, all makes sense. Clear as mud, right? right. So it's called a chiastic structure. Welcome to the very top of the mountain. We've made it to the top of the mountain in the psalm. Uh, The grand calling upon God's people that this psalm writer wants them to walk away with. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. In other words, don't be like those who put their hope in deaf and dumb idols. Don't be like those who don't see. Instead, put your hope in the one who can actually save you is the call. The one who can actually guard you. The one who can actually provide for you and sustain you. Notice the narrowing focus here. All right? We got Israel, house of Aaron, and then those who fear the Lord. What does that mean? It means that the psalmist isn't playing religious games here. We're not playing games. The, the help and shield of the Lord is not for those who merely claim a loose association with Him. It's for those who actually belong to Him by right relationship with Him. In Israel's context... That was, that was a righteous fear of the Lord, of an infinitely holy God within the covenant promises of Abraham's physical family. In our context, it is a righteous fear of an infinitely holy God within the covenant promises of Abraham's spiritual family. What do I mean by that? I mean that the Old Testament faithful trusted in the promise of God to draw near to them, not because God simply overlooked sin or didn't consider, consider sin to be you know, an actual problem. No, he drew near to them in spite of their sin because of the righteousness of a sinless Savior promised to come all the way back in the garden. That's how God drew near to his people. And so in the exact same way, we trust in the promise that God will draw near to us. Again, not because God simply overlooks sin or because he doesn't consider sin to be you know, an actual problem. No, he draws near to us in spite of our sin because of the righteousness of a sinless Savior who has already come and accomplished a perfect righteousness on our behalf. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it is always a call to see him rightly And then to respond accordingly. To see his perfect sinlessness. To see our desperate need for a savior. And then to humble ourselves before him by gladly clinging to the undeserved reconciliation that he graciously offers to those who are far from him. You who fear the Lord. Trust in the Lord. 
But as pretty as the mountaintop is, it's also time to start walking back down the mountain. So look at verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. Verse 14, may the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. So the greatest blessing is to know the Lord and to rest in his presence and provision. But the obvious next question emerges. Okay, what comes after that? Right? Great. God's on top of the mountain. Is there anything else on the mountain? Future blessing. Future blessing is also in store here. Because of who God is, because of His steadfastness, because of His faithfulness to His people, how could we ever describe anything from His hand as something other than blessing? The psalmist here, he doesn't speak in some kind of quid pro quo relationship. That's not what's going on. The animists try to scratch God's back so he'll scratch theirs. That, that's, that's a pagan game. In the Bible, the Lord blesses and continues to bless because, quote, He remembers us. It is God's good character and His covenant faithfulness that's in the driver's seat. Not anything that we may or may uh, do to serve Him and get something back from Him. We trust that the creator and owner of heaven and earth is good and that He delights, actually enjoys blessing His people. We don't have to walk some kind of tight rope with, rope with him. He loves to lavish upon his people. Those that belong to him can expect blessing from God. Now, our definition of blessing may be very, very different than God's definition of blessing. We need to be careful there. God has also promised that persecution will come to those that belong to him. All right? And so we need to make very, very certain that our ex- ex- expectations of blessing from God are defined biblically and not by some quasi-spiritual imposter worldview. Those are two different things. But when you see the world and God's work in it through that biblical lens, the expectation of blessing is the correct phraseology to use. We expect it from Him. How could we not look at who he is? See his character. See his commitment. See what he has consistently done. Why would we ever expect anything less than that? You think he's going to change? And that leads us to verse 16. Our last step down the mountain. The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth has given to the, uh, he has given to the children of man. Verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. All right, church. So rightly seeing God's glory and, uh, and kind of rightly seeing God's glory spreads the fame of his name, right? It, how, how could it not do that? All right? It guards us from the absurdity of the idols around us. It brings temporal blessings in this life. And also we see here, most importantly of all, I think, it produces a deep and abiding worship in his people. We will bless the Lord, the psalmist says. The dead, they don't praise him. They don't have it in them, but we will. 
We will bless the Lord. Those who don't have eyes to see, they go down into the silence. But by God's grace, he has opened our eyes to his goodness. He has opened our eyes to his splendor. We didn't earn or achieve our way into his presence or his beauty. But now that our eyes have been opened to who he is, how can we not respond with every ounce of praise that is in us? Not just today both now and into the future, from this time forth and forevermore, the psalmist says. This isn't a one-time deal. This is a change how you see the world and change what fuels you kind of deal. The natural response to rightly seeing God's glory is to be emptied of both involuntary and involuntary praise. We drum up everything we got and more comes out of us because why not? So what do we do with this stuff? Well, the way I see it, there are a couple of possible right responses today. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, the first right response is to be reconciled to him. Not by any merit on your part. You can't pull that off. No more than lifeless statues can. But by seeing and savoring and placing your trust in the goodness of who he is and what he has done on your behalf. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated relationally from God because of our sin. It's as clear as anything can be in the Bible. We chase after the fame of our own name and we cling to the absurdity of false idols and we value temporal blessings over and above the giver of those good gifts. And at the end of the day, all of us, every single one of us, we all work to gather praise for ourselves. You can try to argue against it if you want, but we're all going to have to go home and look in the mirror later. It's just the truth. And because of that sin-filled separation, because of the gap that exists between a holy God and a sin-filled man, the Bible teaches that we are all, every one of us, owed the right and just punishment for sin. Death. But the Bible also teaches that it is while we were still sinners, dead in our sin, that Christ died for the ungodly. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a cross in your place to make full and final payment for your sin. And he rose again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. Now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. I'd love to be helpful to you. After we're done here, we can talk about it. Let's talk. But there's a second right response that we can potentially make this morning. And it's, it's for those who, having a holy and righteous fear of the Lord, have already placed their trust in Him, placed their faith in Him. And so if, if the right response to, to seeing His glory is celebration and worship, then it kind of seems fitting this morning to savor and celebrate through one of the specific means He's given us to do so. An eternal picture in the form of a meal. Something he's actually given us to, to act on this response of celebration and faith. And so if I could get our servers to come forward, please. Now we practice what we call open communion here. It means that uh, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, we're going to have to trust you on that. You're welcome at this table. Now if that's not you... If that, if, I mean, this needs to be an honest moment for you. If that's not you, if you haven't placed your hope and trust in Jesus, then we just kindly ask you to abstain. All right, uh, 
But if you're here this morning and you see your sin and you see uh, your desperate need for a Savior and you cling to Jesus as your only hope, then this is a picture for you. It is the blind belief that you don't need Jesus to help you that disqualifies you from this. But if you see Jesus and cling to Jesus, then this is for you. Gentlemen, could you pass out the bread, please?